Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Frank Ostaseski, hosted by Steve Heilig, titled This Vulnerable Human Life. Well, good morning, folks. I'm hoping you can all hear me, or good day, since, or good night, since I think people are signing on from around the globe, which is a wonderful thing. I'm Steve Heilig, a host at uh, Commonweal New School. And this beautiful morning in the San Francisco Bay Area, where both Frank and I are, we're very glad to be here and that uh, you have been able to join us. The uh, historical background of this uh, particular talk is that last beginning of the year, January, February, uh, Frank and I decided it would be nice to do another talk. We did one three years ago uh, when his book, uh, The Five Invitations, came out. We did it in person at Commonweal, as we like to do, and did a recording and had that posted. And approximately 12,000 people have watched that video on YouTube. So obviously there is a great interest in hearing Frank talk about things. So we scheduled this uh, to have an in-person talk. And then, of course, right about that time, we started to hear about a new virus coming to the United States, spreading around the world. And uh, we postponed it because we did not want at that point to do uh, a virtual talk. We love to do them in person, but uh, we thought maybe we'll see what's going to happen. So the rest is history. As you know, uh, we are in the midst of this uh, great pandemic. And it's been a very challenging and uh, even harrowing time for many people around the planet at this point, which makes it uh, even more relevant that the title of this talk, as we had scheduled it and we kept it for this time, was This Vulnerable Human Life. Um, what has happened both in our own lives and in the lives of many around the planet, of course, is that we're experiencing great threats to our health, livelihood, uh, psychic and uh, emotional well-being, etc. I can tell you just personally, I've had some, since, since we postponed this talk, I've had both some uh, health challenges, nothing, nothing life-threatening yet, but, uh, and um, a fair amount of grief. Um, and since we did the talk three years ago, Frank, our speaker, has had some very serious challenges as well. So I think everybody is on here probably knows who Frank Ostaseski is, but just in the briefest sense, he was the co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project here in San Francisco, where many people both uh, experienced the end of their own lives and many experienced training in how to help with that and how to experience it themselves, including myself, an invaluable training experience that we had. He since went on to who found the Meta Institute, which has done a lot of training uh, of providers and clinicians and people who uh, help other people, and has been a speaker around the world, uh, including virtually here, but also physically around the world. And welcome to you, Frank, my dear friend and teacher, and uh, please uh, welcome everybody on and say whatever you wish. Well, it's, it's sweet to be with you, Steve, and I don't know about teacher, but I think of us as 
longtime spiritual friends. That's what I think of us as. And uh, I'm very grateful for that friendship. You've taught me a lot over the years, and I've learned immensely from you. And I'm happy to be here. You know, I, I love Commonweal and the New School and, you know, have a great admiration for their work around the world. And, and I'm glad we can have a chance to talk. And I'm hoping we get lots of opportunities to talk with the folks that are on the call. And, yeah, our, our subject today is vulnerability, you know, and it's, it's not one we like to even imagine, actually. You know, I come from a Buddhist tradition, right? So that's my reference point, at least to begin here. And you know, Steve, at the entrance to every zendo, every meditation hall, there's a large wooden block. It's called a han. And uh, it's a hard oak block. And uh, it's hit with a wooden mallet to call people into the zendo when it's time to come for meditation. And um, across on that block is written in black sumi ink, uh, a teaching, a message, if you will. And it's translated in lots of different ways. But the one I like best is life and death are of supreme importance. Life passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Awaken, awaken. Do not squander this life. Yeah? And every day, teachers and students pass by this block and, and, uh, and read the teaching, of course. But what I find most fascinating is that over the years, all that hammering of the wooden mallet on the block, it literally drives the words into the block itself. And the block becomes the teaching. <laughs> you know, the words can't be read anymore, but the block itself becomes the teaching. And it, too, becomes a fragile and vulnerable thing. And eventually, like the rest of us, it falls apart, too. Yeah. Um, I think that what happens for us as human beings is that when we relax our clinging to our treasured beliefs and our fixed ideas and our self-images, we become a more vulnerable thing. And, and, you know, of course, we have a lot of resistance to the blows of life, you know, but if we stop trying to manage uncertainty so much and hold our, we can hold ourselves a little more lightly, and we, maybe like the block, become less of a solid thing. So vulnerability... Normally, we think of it as the susceptibility to being harmed, that we can be hurt physically or emotionally, psychologically in some way. That's the general understanding of it. But I have a different appreciation of it or a different understanding of it. I think of vulnerability as a kind of porousness that allows the world all the beauty and, and, and horror of this world to impress itself on our souls, on our consciousness, on our bones, so to speak. And, and that's part of what allows us to, to appreciate the world, but also to build a kind of empathetic bridge to the people that we, that we know in our life. Yeah. And, and ultimately what happens is that vulnerability, well, Again, mostly what we think about it is our defense against harm. But that isn't vulnerability. What vulnerability is, is this pure openness. You know, this non-defensiveness, actually, that allows us to be much more receptive, that allows 
reality to influence us and act on us. Our attempts to stay invulnerable, like some kind of teenager, you know. Yes, it's a kind of shell that we build around ourselves that tries to keep the pain out, but also it keeps out what we need most, each other's tenderness and love. And, uh, and, you know, if we harden to the world like that, yeah, we keep out the pain, but we also keep out the qualities that we most need to be fully human. And so I, I, I've learned to make friends with vulnerability, you know? I think of it as the most exquisite of human qualities because, you know, it allows us to really know things. And, and I'll just, I'll, I'll finish up here, but, you know, the one thing I can remember from high school biology, and, and I don't remember much at all, was the teaching of osmosis, how things permeate, you know, cross semi-permeable membranes, yeah? And, and, and influence each, each, each cell influences each other. And for me, it's a bit like that, you know? Vulnerability reminds me and that we are all sensitive souls that can be easily influenced, you know? And that, it, that not just by the plain, pains and pleasures of our bodies, but by the emotional upheavals of our own hearts and the dramas of our mind. Vulnerability gives us the possibility of experiencing, of being aware, of being in contact with all levels of reality. So in my mind, vulnerability is closer to permeability, closer to non-defensiveness. Yeah. So I wanted to just start there. It was a way of reframing this idea of vulnerability so that we don't just think of it as something we have to avoid or, or somehow manage in our life. Yeah. So I don't want to yak on too long. I want to be in conversation with you and, and the people on the call if possible. So I'll stop there and, and we'll see what's on your heart and mind, Steve. Well, thank you uh, for that beautiful opening. And you started with the personal level appropriately. So, so uh, again, I, I rewatched our talk from three years ago, right? About exactly three years ago. And talked a fair bit about how this was actually hard-won wisdom. And, you know, I mean, one of the things you said then, I used to think I knew a lot about dying, then I had my own heart attack. And so uh, you talked about that, and subsequent to that talk, you had a stroke. So I think that this is not an academic or abstract uh, words and feeling for you about how vulnerable you have really been and that eventually we all are in some way or another, but you have lived through it. So I'm wondering since three years ago when you had had the heart attack and come through that with great, great struggle, um, what more has, has been, what more learning has been forced upon you <laughs> Yeah, well, that you might, that you might want to share with them? Well, thank you. And, 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 and I, maybe I'm just really, dull, you know, and thick-headed. And, you know, so reality keeps trying to act on me to help me understand more. Yeah, you know, it's true. I I don't know now, maybe a year ago, I 
woke one morning with severe headache and I didn't know what it was. I probably should have given the work I do, but I didn't know. Um, and I was in incredible pain. And my wife uh, helped, could understand, and she called, you know, the emergency people, and they said, get him to the hospital right away. And I was having a stroke. And, and what's true about the heart attacks and also the strokes is that, well, what I say is that I've been with a lot of people who are dying, who are, you know, that I've sat next to bedside. But the view from the other side of the sheets is really different. You know, when you are the person in the bed, it's a really different kind of understanding that emerges for us. You know, I have to I wish I could say that I was, you know, I, that I did it all perfectly. I, I failed miserably, you know. I, uh, I, I didn't, I wasn't always able to maintain some kind of balance and, uh, and insight in my experience. It was scary, you know, and, uh, and I resisted the experience. Curiously, not initially, Steve, you know, what was really interesting to me anyway, I don't know if it's interesting to the viewers, but you know, when the stroke actually happened, while there was a severe pain, there was a kind of background awareness, I'll call it, I don't know what else to call it, which was able to watch my brain go offline. I mean, what was happening in my brain was that I couldn't tell the difference between night and day anymore. And I didn't have no sense of direction. I couldn't find my way from the bed to the bathroom. Um, I, you know, it was really, my, my brain was really confused, but awareness wasn't confused. Awareness was able to observe and watch that experience occurring. And so what, what happened after the initial anxiety and fear is that my, the locus of my attention rested in the awareness. And uh, then there wasn't so much fear. Then there wasn't so much anxiety. So I'm grateful for that. And, and, and it, it's, it's been a great asset for, for me, a great help for me. Um, I don't know, ask me another question. <laughs> well, I'm wondering about that. Did you, I, I'm actually reminded of our mutual friend, you were much closer to him, Ram Dass, yeah. who since our last talk also passed on and you, you spent a lot of time with him. When he had his stroke over 20 years ago, I talked to him not long after, really. And I asked him, you're a, a great teacher of meditation and spirituality. And did that uh, training, seasoning help you in this experience? So I'm wondering, you know, what you're, you're talking about, the distancing, the observ observing that you could do that helped you. Was that, you relate that to being a meditator, to Buddhist uh, teaching and training? or yes. Yes, and I, I, I think of it as certainly a, a fruit, if you will, of my training. Was it Bruce Lee that said, you know, if, you know, in times of distress, we don't rise to our best expectation, we fall to our training. And so, yes, it was in part my training, but also it's, it was a kind of basic trust that I have in my life about 
who we actually are and what the nature of our nature is in a way that that was helpful i think and also honestly it got kind of kickstarted by the by the stroke because i learned later that where the stroke occurred in my brain the occipital lobe is generally responsible for things like space and time and and what it did was catapult me out of space and time and i was in a kind of non-conceptual awareness for a period of time and that was actually helpful to not feeling so much anxiety and fear so yeah we there are lots of things about it that that was so but you know i had five strokes steve not just one and so i was in and out of the hospital every couple of weeks and i don't like hospitals and they scare me honestly and uh but every once in a while you find this gem in them you know like it was a harsh environment to be in the hospital frankly but i remember one night there was this young lab tech who woke me up you know at three in the morning to take my blood so that they could have it in the morning for the for the docs results for the docs and this young 29 year old woman julia was her name i remember her still and she came in and she said, I'm so sorry to wake you, sir. She was very polite. And she said, I, but I have to take your blood, you know, for the lab. And I, and I said, it's okay. You, you can do it. But first you have to tell me something that you love. <laughs> and she looked at me like, who is this crazy old guy, you know? And, and she said, well, I, I love my son. I said, oh, tell me about him. And she told me that he was five years old and, you know, she loved him beyond words. And, and I said, oh, I, I love my granddaughter like that. Well, she's five, too. We should get them together, you know. And, and we, then we met in this other place. We met in a human place, a vulnerable human place, actually. And uh, we had this kind of exchange. And, and at the end, she said, boy, I sure like being with you. And I said, well, please bring this to the next room, to the next person you go and see, you know. And I trust that she did. And it was beautiful to be with her and to be so human. And I thanked her for her, for doing it so well that not only did she, you know, prick me with a needle skillfully, but she did it humanly, you know, kindly. Uh, we met heart to heart, human to human. When I left that hospital, I have to tell you that I got in the car, my wife was going to drive me home and I started crying. And she said, honey, what is it? And I said, I don't want to leave Julia. I was okay leaving some of the docs, but I didn't want to leave Julia because I, I felt like I got exactly what I needed from her, you know, which is just to, just to meet each other human to human. And when we know our own vulnerability, well, then we can meet others in that same place. And... I think it's I think it's the thing that contributes most to healing actually. Have you been in touch have you been in touch with her since? No. Mm -hmm. No, I, I I don't know how to reach her. I mean I suppose I could get her through the hospital, but I I just I, I know what we had is real and we don't have to have another encounter, you know. But uh, but wow. It's interesting to see who's going to contribute most to your healing. And for me, it was Julia. Yeah.
Well, and this has been, I have to say, you know, with Meta Institute that you and Rachel Remen and others has been a part of the teaching is, is trying to teach people who are caregivers to make that connection. So, yeah, you know, we, we, my wife and I were up at a friend's house in Petaluma after the first two strokes. And um, I thought I could have a swim in their pool and that because I like to be in the water. And when I got out and I was getting dressed, suddenly my left side got very weak and um, I realized I was having a stroke and my ability to speak went away and I had this garbled speech and my face drooped and, you know, oh boy, oh boy. And we were close to the hospital, so my wife drove me to the emergency room there and we were in the ER and there was this nurse, Stephen, was a guy and he was so great, he was so kind. And I said to him, how'd you get so kind? <laughs> you know, ER staff is, you know, they move fast. They're, they're often cowboys, you know? And he said, oh, he said, I had, a, I had a mentor. And he said this, this mentor told us how to, showed us how to be comfortable with people when there was nothing to do how to listen deeply to people. He, he's also, his mentor was also a hospice doc, as well as being an ER doc. And, and, uh, and he told me about how this, the model that this doctor provided and the little bit of guidance he offered had really changed the way that he practiced. He did his clinical practice in the ER. And I turned to my wife, Vanda, and I said, you know, I think he's talking about Steve. Steve was a student of mine at the Meta Institute. You know him. I won't doubt him here, but he's a really great doc. And, and uh, so, so Vanda turned to this young nurse and she said, well, you're caring for your mentor's mentor now. And this ER nurse, he just started to cry right there in the, in, in the, in the ER, you know. And he was very real. <laughs> and uh, I felt safe in his hands. I felt really safe in his hands. You know, our expertise were important. I was glad that that ER nurse knew what the hell he was doing. You know, I was glad that Julia could stick me with a needle in a skillful way. I want people who have mastery, who have good expertise. I have a lot of tools that I've developed over the years, but I don't lead with my tools. I lead with my humanity. And then, you know, when I need a tool, I can reach there and get it. And, but the most important thing is to connect human to human. And, and, you know, to the people who are on this call, many of whom I'm sure are caregivers and some are clinicians, that's the message I most want to convey. That it is your, your own vulnerability, your own human heart, that, well, maybe your greatest asset. Yeah. So there's, a, there's a, a striking example of the ripple effect of uh, your teaching, Meta Institute's teaching, kind of rippling out and then coming back right to your own bedside. I mean, what do you call that? Karma? You know, I mean, this is like, <laughs> it's a wonderful thing, you know. Um, you know, synchronicity at least, yes. Synchronicity, maybe both. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I wonder if you want to say anything more about Ram Das. I know you were close to him uh, and he was a teacher to so many and including in this realm of uh, yeah. mortality and such. Well, you know, yes, he was a very dear friend. And, and um, you know, when I had my strokes, he called me in, in the hospital and he said, so what did you see? Did you see any tunnels of light, any bardos? You know? And I said, no, nothing. You know, he said, same thing happened for me when he had his strokes. He said, all I saw was the the pipes in the ceiling as they were rolling me into the ER, you know? So we talked about how we've both been miserable failures, you know, that we didn't transcend anything really. But we also talked about our humanity. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I most loved about Ram Dass was how he often taught from his mistakes. You know, he, that's where he was wisest and, and most compassionate, is speaking from his mistakes. I remember being with him once, we were teaching at Metta Institute together, and, and I said, you know, Ramdas, in that moment when you had your strokes and everybody wanted you to be Ramdas, you know, what did you really want? And, and very kindly he said, I wanted somebody like you to be with me. Somebody who didn't need me to be someone special who didn't need me to be the awakened one, you know? And, um, and that was a really good lesson for me to hear that from him. You know, we, we were like two old Jews in Miami talking on the phone about our strokes and the various, you know, uh, conditions that, that arose, the symptoms that we had. But, you know, mostly we just were grateful to be alive. And, um, and what I saw, what I saw from Ram Das is that for years and years and years, he talked about the importance of love and loving awareness. And as he came closer to the end of his life, I was, I, I spoke with him often as he came closer to the end of his life. He just became love, Steve. He just was love. And um, that maybe sounds conceptual, but he, he looked through the eyes of love at everything. And so nothing was outside of that love, you know? And, and that's, I think that's what he transmitted to me and also what I'm discovering as being most important. Love is not a gated community. Everything gets in, you know, all the parts of ourself that feel unlovable or that we want to, you know, distance ourselves from and, and everybody else, you know, it, it, they're allowed. <laughs> Everything's allowed in that, in the territory of love. And, and it's not wishy-washy in California, woo-woo, you know, it's not like it's, you know, it's this love is stable and steady and strong and it enables us to meet what seems impossible yeah and all of us every one of us have that innately within us and we can draw on it as an essential resource in our life yeah So three years ago, the reason we were first talking was your book had come out. Yeah. Anybody 
anybody hasn't <laughs> been able to uh, read this, it's uh, highly recommended. And I just like you to reflect. It's the five invitations, which were uh, don't wait, welcome everything, push away nothing, bring your whole self to experience, find a place of rest in the middle of the things and cultivate a don't know mind. So you went out uh, touring around, talking about this book all over the place. And um, have a, Kira has posted the website about your book and teaching. So, you know, what what would you like to impart of the experience of having this book out there and having people read it and and out and teaching about it? Uh, was this also a a, uh, a learning experience for you, for you yourself? Well, yes, of course, I, I learned, but... What I realized in writing the book, of course, was that I'd had remarkable teachers in my life. I mean, we were just talking about Ram Dass. He was a dear friend also and teacher. But, you know, the thousand or more people that I sat with bedside, they were the true teachers. They were the ones that really showed me what matters most, you know. Um, and one of the things, you know, those those invitations, if you will, they, they were guides that we used in caring for people near the end of life. But it, it turns out they also had a relevance for the rest of us in, in living a life of meaning and purpose and value, you know. And the first one that you mentioned, I, I won't go through them all, but the first one you mentioned, don't wait. That's really important, you know. I mean, to imagine that we're going to have the physical strength, the emotional stability, the mental clarity to, to, to do the work of a lifetime on our deathbed is an absurd gamble. It's a ridiculous gamble. So don't wait. You know, the, the time to do that work is now. Yeah? You know, waiting is full of expectation, waiting for the next moment to arrive. We miss this one. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've been with family members who have said, you know, when is mom going to die? And, and waiting for that moment of death, they miss all the moments in between. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Frank Ostaseski and host Steve Heilig. So don't wait is a kind of, you know, encouragement to step into our life fully, completely. Not to miss a moment of it. It's not some kind of urgency like, you know, you know, finish everything on your bucket list. It's not about that. It's about, it's about actually being present, not waiting to be present. To, to tell someone you love that you love them. You know, don't wait to do that. Yeah, the, the, the two most important questions that are on people's hearts and minds when they're dying aren't, you know, what are my great regrets or, you know, what happens after I die? Yeah, of course, people ask those questions. But the two questions on their hearts and minds are, am I loved? Am I loved? And did I love well? Yeah. And if those are the two most important questions at the end of our life, well, aren't they the most important questions now? And and please, let's not wait to answer them or to live into them. So for me, that's the most, that's one of the most important lessons that my teachers, folks who are dying, taught me. And, and when I go out on the road, as you say, you know, talk about the book or teach, you know, 
people want to get down to the fun. They, they start with how-to questions. Give me the tools. Give me the techniques. But they want to get down to the fundamentals. What really matters? What really matters? And, um, you know, it matters in the way we conduct our relationships. It matters in the way in which we deliver care. It matters as how we sustain ourselves as we deliver care for clinicians and caregivers. I mean, right now, the, the moral distress that is sweeping across healthcare is just, you know, it's, it's epidemic. It's epidemic. You know, clinicians and caregivers being asked to do impossible things right now in the midst of the pandemic. Yeah. So, um, the more I come close to the precariousness of life, the more precious life becomes, the more real it gets for me. And uh, what I find is when people come to talks that I give or conversations like this one, is they want to talk about what's real. <laughs> they want to talk about what matters. And... Uh, that's what we're doing here today. Yeah. So one of the last uh, chapters in your book is about courage. And um, yeah. I reread it and it rang particularly important and true to me in the midst of, as you say, this pandemic. Um, you know, this is where I work. And just on this morning's call, one of the health directors for the state for, for Los Angeles actually said, it's time to shut everything down um, for the time being. I mean, the, it's looking very ominous at this point. Yeah. Um, and I'd actually, uh, I'm going to quote somebody I don't, I haven't quoted before on this. Um, I was a geek when I was a kid and read Tolkien books over and over. And I think uh. everybody knows about the Lord of the Rings, right? But there's a great uh, passage in there where there's an impending war struggle for the survival of, of real civilization. And Frodo, who is the young habit who ends up saving the world, but he's, he's not there yet. He says, I wish this need not have happened in my time. Hmm. And Gandalf, the great, great wizard, who is the uh, good wizard, says, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us, right? So words, great words from a wizard. Um, in the midst of this uh, pandemic, I'm wondering if this has brought some of these teachings more real to you as well in terms of uh, how do we cope with the bigger picture of vulnerability for one thing threats to ourselves and to those who love us and threats to our way of life really too, because we have an economic uh, collapse in a sense. And uh, we don't know. It's really, you know, it's been called even before now the age of anxiety. And it's mostly, you could call that also the age of uncertainty. We really don't know what's going to happen. And uh, we have glimmers of, of hope. Um, I could say three things. One is there's uh, what looked to be some very effective vaccines coming. Uh, and the treatment of the severe forms of this disease is much better than it was just six months ago. Much more likely to not even have to go into a hospital, but if you do, come out. Um, and then we've just recently had an election one month ago now 
that has given many people a sense of more hope than they had before. So I'm wondering in terms of this, this great threat, this plow, this pandemic, um, if that has brought some of these teaching more real to you and what your thoughts might be about that. Oh boy, Steve, there's a lot in that, you know. Yes. <laughs> but, but, but I want to I just come back to this word that you use, courage, you know, courage. You know, we, I, I mentioned in passing this idea of moral distress, the idea that, you know, we know what's ethically right to do, but we can't always do it. We feel constrained, you know, or uh, not able to do what we feel or know is right, you know. And one of the balancing factors for that is a kind of moral courage, you know, the ability to stand up on our own behalf or to stand up on behalf of the values and ethics that we, that we value, you know. And we've been challenged about around those things in this country, um, certainly in the last four years. You know, courage is, there's different kinds of courage, right? Like, like the courage that, we think of first is the courage of the warrior, right? The contemporary soldier, the first responder, the ER doc, you know, the people that are doing amazing stuff who are working in healthcare facing unbelievable suffering with inadequate resources, for example. And that healthy warrior courage is motivated by honor and loyalty and, and service and commitment, right? And, um, you know, it has to be balanced with intelligence, yeah. But there's a shadow side of that courage too, which, you know, can be aroused by shame and coercion and, and the need to control or some kind of defensiveness that leads us to a kind of false invulnerability, yeah. So... So we need a different kind of courage, too. We need courage of heart, right? Which is every bit as powerful. It's, it's that we allow, you know, there's a strength in it, but it's not necessarily the strength of, you know, fighting off all of the difficulties of life. It's more a willingness to be undefended, to be open, a willingness to touch, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the 10,000 joys and sorrows. That's courage of heart. We need it. And then there's this word that we keep coming around to, which is vulnerability. And I think there's a courage to be vulnerable. Yeah. And, and my experience in my own life and lives of others that I'm working with is that the courage to be vulnerability opens a doorway to a aspect of our being which is in fact invulnerable it's not the teenage invulnerability or the vulnerability of the invulnerability rather of stoicism you know it's this deeper capacity that we have you know uh, a kind of spaciousness uh, uh, that we can that can allow the winds of the world to blow right through us yeah and, and they can do that because there's no place for the fear to stick. And we can cultivate that capacity. So these, there's these different kinds of courage, I think, you know. And, um, you know, in my, in my tradition, we talk about bodhisattvas. You know, bodhisattvas are great beings, you know, Buddhas or saints, sages, in a way. In a way and, 
and you know they they go towards suffering and they have immensely compassionate hearts <laughs> and they, they they they're able to stay present for suffering that would bring the rest of us to our knees in a way but i think there's lots of bodhisattvas among us i don't think they're so special like I know this guy, Steve, you may know him. His name is Julio. And he works in a big, you know, metropolitan hospital in San Francisco. I, I know him working there. And he, he's a kind of nurse's aide, attendant. And, you know, he goes, his job is to clean up the rooms, basically, after there's been a code. And, you know, you know what it's like in a code sometimes. And, you know, it, it's a mess in the room. And when a person dies... Everybody leaves the room and the drawers to all the, you know, uh, supplies are open and there's rags on the floor. And his job is to go in and clean up the space. And I think Julio has courage because he goes into the room and he surveys the whole room and he looks at the mess and the chaos that's there. And then he goes over to the patient and he leans over and he whispers in their ears, the patient who's died, he says, I want to let you know that you've died. But I'm here with you. And I'm going to do my best to wash away all dust and confusion. And then he goes about tidying up the whole room, putting everything away, creating a kind of clean and ordered space. And then he goes about bathing the person, the person who's died. And, you know, some nursing supervisor sticks her head in the room and says, come on, hurry up, we need this room. But the other nurses know what Julio's doing and they protect him. And they, they, they stick their heads in the door too and they say, it's okay, Julio, take your time, take your time. We got it. They value what he's doing. They know it's ethically right to do it. So I think there's manifestations of courage that are happening all over the place. And in this pandemic, we're seeing it, you know, on steroids. <laughs> you know, the kinds of stuff that's happening in hospitals where clinicians are being both extraordinary clinicians, great expertise, and also family members to people. We keep saying people are dying alone in hospitals. They're not dying alone. They're dying oftentimes in the company of remarkable clinicians who are there not only with their expertise, but with their human hearts. And I'm really grateful to them. Really grateful to them. Yeah. Yeah, you know, in, in your uh, book, after listing a number of instances of, of courage that you'd heard about or witnessed, you, you said, when fear speaks, courage is the heart's answer. Yeah. I thought was quite beautiful, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, I wonder... I'm wondering if you have, I mean, just elaborating on this a little bit, if you can, if you have uh, tips <laughs> or um, advice for those living with this this anxiety and, and uncertainty, um, you know, beyond uh, stepping in and working in that way, which some of us can do and some not, but just in terms of living through this, uh, what do you find useful? Well... You know, we've already talked about don't wait. 
you know, and, and we're, we're waiting. A lot of us are waiting. When can we get back to normality? You know, and we're waiting in this in this kind of bubble, this 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 pause we're in, which is often characterized by a great deal of anxiety and fear. And so, the more the more we're able to come into the present moment, to sense our bodies, to be with people who we care about in whatever way we can be with them. You know, it grounds us, it stabilizes us. It gives us the capacity to take a slightly deeper breath, I think, you know, and be more available to people. So, you know, looking too, looking too far ahead sometimes, we can get ourselves in a tangle, you know, of worry and anxiety. Yesterday, I was talking to a group of clinicians in Italy, and I was talking about, this is, may sound trite, but I was talking about a sense of wonder, being able to have a sense of wonder, that, it's, that it seems like an indulgence right now or some distraction, but actually it's necessary. It's a resource for us. It's even a refuge for us to be able to evoke a sense of wonder about, you know, how, what's happening and, and how we're meeting it, you know, and to appreciate the smaller uh, things in our life and to, to walk through life with some ability to still experience awe and wonder. So anyway, I, I, perhaps I go off the subject, but I think these very human things that we know as human beings are helpful to us. And of course, we know the normal things like let's get, you know, let's get enough sleep and let's get a walk outside and let's eat well. Those things that are essential, of course, to maintaining some balance. See, if you and I came up on the AIDS epidemic together and um, and I'm, there's a lot of things that are happening now that remind me of those times, of course. But one of the things that, that I know you've been experiencing a lot is grief. And, and I did too in, in, the, in the AIDS epidemic. You know, sometimes I work with 30 or 40 people a week who died, you know. Right now, there are, there are nurses in hospitals who are taking care of more people who die in a single day than are in their families. What do we do with that, you know? I used to do three things. I, I would come to my meditation cushion, sit on my meditation cushion, because it would help stabilize me. It would help regulate my emotional, you know, upheaval. But that wasn't enough. So I used to go to a body worker, a friend of mine who was really good, and I'd walk in his office and he'd say, where today, Frank? And I'd say, just here, and on my shoulder. And he'd put his hand on my shoulder, and he wouldn't do anything else. He'd just keep his hand there for an hour, and I would weep for an hour. And there was something about that physical touch and also the relational quality of his contact with me that was really important, that enabled me to experience the grief that I was unable to go near. And then I did a third thing. I went to San Francisco General, where I knew the nurses, you know some of them there, and I went up to the maternity ward. And there I went to see uh, hold babies that were born to addicted mothers, mothers who were addicted to crack or alcohol. And these little infants would have, would just shake in my arms and I would sit and rock them and rock them and stroke their throats and bellies and eventually I could soothe them. 
And that was actually really helpful to me because there was other suffering that I couldn't relieve uh, when I went back to work with folks who were dying of AIDS. So there was something about that service and that ability to know that some suffering can be relieved while others can't, you know, that was really helpful to me. So those were things that I did to, to work with the grief and the impossibility that we were facing at the time, which is, which is reminiscent of what we're experiencing now is reminiscent of those times. Yeah. It's very much so. You know, we uh, did a, did a talk uh, for the new school just a couple months ago with Dr. Donald Abrams, who was one of the pioneers at San Francisco General. Uh, it's posted on our site. I highly recommended people to watch this. Uh, um, he did say that it took him years to realize that after that initial experience, so many patients dying, that he had PTSD. I mean, he had clinical distress that he had buried, and it took a long time to work through that. Yeah, from from that experience, which was formative, you know. Um, you know, right now, uh, uh, caregivers who are just, first of all, just exposure to suffering, the daily exposure to suffering, enormous suffering is hard because they don't always have the tools or the wherewithal to integrate that suffering. And they just go back into it the next day. And then that's complicated by what we mentioned again, moral distress. The, you know what's ethically right to do, but you can't do it. You know, you're constrained from doing it. And that, that develops, you know, moral residue in a way, a kind of buildup of this distress that's there. It, that's different than just emotional distress, you know. And it can crescendo. It can be, there can be this effect that occurs where people who have this ongoing moral distress and have this kind of residue, it just becomes too much. And what happens is they become insensitive to moral concerns, actually. And it, it dramatically impacts their ability to be effective caregivers. And it spills out on, on the people that they serve, the patients and families that they serve. And so in, in, unless we can help those caregivers work with that moral distress, we're going to see more and more withdrawing. We're going to see more people leaving the profession. We're going to see inadequate care in the systems in which we're now caring for people. What I want to emphasize is that that isn't just the job of the nurse or the clinician. Moral distress is a signal that the systems are not able to deal or aren't willing to deal with the distress that's occurring for the people who work in those systems. So it's not just let's teach a little mindfulness to the nurses. The system has to figure out a way to deal with these kind of in this this ethical, moral distress that people are experiencing. You know, I, I work with a group of, I uh, talked with a group of docs and nurses who are ER docs in New York at the height of the, of their, of uh, the outbreaks, the surge there. And, you know, they were having to put people on ventilators without any informed consent. And it was really hard for them, really hard for them. So, yeah, we are facing really big challenges here, and there's no simple answers for it. There's no simple tips. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, you know, so we, we actually have a uh, an anonymous question here, which is, a, you know, it's, it's sort of what you've, we've just been talking about, but it's a why question. Why is it that some experiences of suffering harden and close people off, while other experiences of suffering soften and open them up? Yeah, well... 
it's hard to, a- to answer these questions in, you know, just conceptually, but I think some of it has to do with where we have resonance with that suffering. You know, uh, Jung talked about the wounded healer, right? The one who dives deep into his or her own wounds and comes back with some kind of jewel, if you will, some kind of gift that gives them a capacity to have resonance with someone else who has a similar wound. Yeah. Now, if we don't do that dive, if we don't understand or work with our own suffering, then we become wounding healers. You know, we become people who pass on our trauma to other people who add more fear to situations when what, what's needed is no fear, you know? So, so it has to do with the, the, it has to do with, are we, have we done our homework? Yeah. Have we looked and seen what our own relationship is to the particular kind of suffering that we're facing and some are more difficult for us than others, you know? So when I'm working with someone who's dying, I'm always doing my homework. I'm always looking at my own fear, my own grief, my own, you know, desire to run out of the room. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering, three, three years ago, we talked a little bit about uh, kind of the culture of denial, denial of death and all of that. And you were actually optimistic in a sense that you felt like more people were, you know, actually exploring this and, and moving past denial in, in our in our culture. I'm wondering which, you know, in three years since then, if you felt that more and if you think this pandemic is going to push that along further or, um, you know, is there some improvement there um, or at least change, you know, from our tradition of not wanting to face it at all? Yes, I, I remain hopeful, optimistic, you know. Uh, I, I think that really, you know, as a culture, the subject has come out of the closet, so to speak. Death has come out of the closet. And we're more willing to talk about it, certainly in these days. Um, and also, a generation is emerging, you know, a generation of, you know, baby boomers who are emerging, who are sandwiched between their aging adult parents and their young kids, you know, still. And that generation wants choice, you know. You know, we have 10 different ways we like our coffee when we go to Starbucks, you know. We want choice in the way in which we die. And so we're, we're getting more involved and there's more conversations. And family members are with people who are dying, not right now in the pandemic, but up, up until this point, they have been. And so that's giving us more familiarity with the process. And familiarity, you know, helps to reduce fear. And, um, and uh, when, we, when there's a reduction in fear, we have more choice, you know. When there's a reduction in fear, there's more love available also, I think. So, yeah, I'm hopeful about it. I, I think that we're having, look at what we're doing right here, you know, on a whatever day of the week this is. My brain can't tell me what day of the week this is. But, you know, here we are, hundreds of us on this call, wanting to, uh, to come face to face with something that most people want to run away from still. And, and last thing I'll say on this is that 
Denial gets a bad rap, you know? I mean, denial just means I'm not ready to do that yet. And I think you don't take away someone's denial until you got something better to replace it with. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Let's not make, uh, let's understand that denial is a pretty good coping strategy for a lot of people for a period of time until they can develop other coping strategies. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, we talked last time, uh, you know, we have a very strong instinct preference for living. Um, You know, it's built into us. But you just mentioned again, uh, you know, we like a lot of choices in our coffee, Mm -hmm. etc. So, you know, that I always bring this up because I'm just wondering what your take on it is. Choice in dying is a big issue. It's spreading around the the nation even more since we talked last time uh, to give people an option of assisted dying. And, um, you know, it seems to be working on a societal sense in terms of the, the big downsides of the slippery slope of people being forced to die are not coming true. But I'm wondering if you have more thoughts on how this is going and, you know, what, what the lessons might be there. Well, you know this territory well, Stephen. You know, of course, there are several states and District of Washington that um, now where this is a physician-assisted death is a, is a protocol that's allowed, you know. And, and I think it's been really helpful, actually, in our, in our country, you know, because one, it's, it had a kind of shock jock effect in that it started getting a lot of people talking about death and also about good pain control and good symptom management, you know. So particularly in the states where physician-assisted death is um, allowed, you know, hospice referrals are up and pain management is better and, you know, symptom control is often better. So I think that that's been invaluable. Sometimes when people feel they have a choice, their anxiety goes down, you know. You know, if you look at the state of Oregon, you know, and you look at the numbers there, thousands of people write for information about uh, physician-assisted death, you know. A thousand or so start to seek out the services but actually very very few people actually go through the process the numbers are really quite low and um i think that what that means is that people really want to have they want to have some agency in their life yeah and once they have the agency they don't necessarily need to uh, go through the process of physician assisted death sometimes just the agency is enough you know but I don't have a moral judgment about how people should die. I think that's a, I think dying is hard enough without us having to bear the burden of everybody's ideas about how we should do it. Uh, so I think it's been a ba- valuable and useful addition to um, the continuum of care. Uh, uh, when one has a uh, life-threatening illness, yeah. Really, just to distinguish, the last thing is, just to distinguish that from suicide, which is a really different experience, yeah. Yeah. Right. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Frank Ostaseski and host Steve Heilig. One of the conundrums there, though, is that um, with all the 
the laws and guidelines as we've as they've been passed is that you have to be able to do it yourself. You have to be yeah. cogent at the time, and so people who might you know one of our greatest fears uh, for many people is to become too demented mm-hmm. or too physically uh, disabled to, to take things into your own hand or you know and so forth. Actually, did a talk at a hospital just last year about this and asked about dementia in the context of choice and dying. And it was a, you know, of course, a uh, biased audience because they were all there and, and worked with these things, clinicians and so forth. But every, you know, I polled the, the large crowd. Do you think there should be an option for people to request this ahead of time? Should I become this demented? Should I, could I be put out of this, you know? And, you know, had a hundred percent yes in that crowd, but, you know, the dangers are, that's the slippery slope that people worry about. But I'm just, so in a way, I'm leading into another question here um, from a Nancy Ryan quote. My best friend has Parkinson's disease and has been declining for several years. He does not have any money. I help him as much as I can. He has no family willing to help him. I carry fear that as his illness progresses, (laughs) I'm sorry, the question has just just moved on here, but how do I live with this and how do I help to take care of him? without hope that things will get better. Yeah. Oh boy. You know, these are these are kind of impossible questions, Steve, because you know, we're trying to deal with these things on an individual basis. Like maybe Nancy's trying to deal with this man that she knows, you know, and and, and it's a quite an isolating experience for her. I mean we keep talking about healthcare reform in this country, but you know, if the pandemic has shown us anything, is that our public health systems are in need of an infusion of capital, but also, you know, some new, some rethinking, you know. If ever we've understood that everybody needs access to healthcare, the pandemic has certainly shown us that, that it is right. And if people have access, um, then it doesn't fall on the, solely on the shoulders of an individual caregiver, whether it's a family member or a friend like Nancy. You know, that's the first thing that we have to acknowledge. Um, and, and the second is that we need to do a lot more education of people, not only around access to healthcare, but helping them to really see what are their choices and what, you know, what really thinking through in advance what they want. You know, I, I know I rewrote my advanced care directives at the beginning of the pandemic, you and I spoke about it. So, um, so th- that's also an important thing to consider. And lastly, I, I'm, I'd be concerned about the slippery slope there, but I think we trust caregivers to make other, de- excuse me, family members and other duly appointed people to make this other decisions for us. When people are not able to make them for themselves, why can't, we trust them to make this decision too. Yeah. You know, our advanced care directives give power to other individuals to make life and death decisions for us. Why is this not one of the ones that could be included in that list? Yeah. I, I think we need a lot more conversation. We need a lot more discussion about this. And we don't just need it on a within the healthcare systems, we need it within families. Yeah. 
So, I, you know, the conversation project is one of the best sources for how to have that kind of conversation. And, and I'd, re I'd certainly refer people to there. Yeah. Okay. Can, can, can we, I, I want to, I don't know what our time is, Steve, because my brain doesn't track time, but I love to hear from some of the people who are on this call, either send us a chat or, you know, if you like, you can go to, can they, can they raise their hand? Is that a possibility? Well, we've got the Q&A here is where I'm reading these from already. Oh, okay. All right. So, so there are some. So put your question in Q&A. Let's, let's go to some of those so we can try and respond. Yeah, that's, that's where the other ones have come from. And here's another one that's lead, you know, flows from what we've been talking about from a B.J. Gallagher. I took care of my mother for the last five years of her life. She had Alzheimer's and that experience of caregiving, I found a depth and quality of love for her that I'd never had before. Mm. Felt like that love blew my heart wide open. And as a result, I feel everything so acutely. I cry often. Seems like everything touches my heart and brings me to tears. I'm fine with feeling all this stuff, but it's exhausting. It just wears me out. I don't know what to do with my exhaustion. So there is vulnerability for you. Yeah, yeah. You know, BJ, I, I know BJ, so I can speak um, to this a little bit. Uh, you know, sometimes our exhaustion is about doing too much. We have too many activities and we don't resource ourselves adequately. And sometimes it's about doing things with an absence of wholeheartedness, you know? And that includes caring for ourselves with wholeheartedness, I would say. Um, you know, when we've experienced something like what BJ is describing, you know, it takes its toll on us and there's a period of recovery that we need where we have to resource ourselves. You know, it's like when I'm working with um, clinicians, I say to them, you know, you guys are not normal. <laughs> you know, it's not normal to, you know, be with dying people on a daily basis. You know, that's not, that's not a normal activity that happens in our, in our society. So the normal coping strategies that you have to go home and watch TV and have a glass of wine aren't going to be sufficient to enable you to metabolize or integrate what you've been bearing witness to. So people need other skill sets. You know, they need ways of regulating their bodies, hearts and minds. Meditation, of course, is one. Time in nature is another. You know, we know the list of things that we can do. The challenge is to do them, you know, and to... Um, do them with some regularity. Um, but I, I also, the last thing I want to say is that we can't put all the weight on the individual caregiver. That's not fair. You know, we need to create systems that help people to resource, that help people to um, have the kind of ongoing support they need when they're going through a process of grieving or the kind of exhaustion that uh, BJ is speaking about. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things, last thing, sorry. One of the things that happens when I'm talking to clinicians is I ask them, what's good about being exhausted? <laughs> and they give me interesting answers. They say, well, other people think I'm really dedicated. They think I'm really committed to my work or it shows that I really care, you know? And these are misunderstandings, I think, you know? I think these are misunderstandings that drive us into actions that are not so helpful for us. 
I don't think that's specifically what BJ is talking about. I think BJ is just speaking about the utter tiredness that comes from unintegrated emotional material. Yeah. So, you know, I do two uh, things. Related. I, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's just a related question that flows from that again. Um, from Alora and Moore. I'm a massage therapist and I'm beginning to share with my clients how our emotions affect our bodies and the need to deal with these trapped emotions. Any suggestions on how to introduce this? Oh, that, that's really good that you're doing that. Tell me her name again, Steve, the person's name again? Uh, Laura. Laura. Laura Ann. Okay, Laura Ann. You know, before there's any emotion, before there is any thought in our minds or hearts, there's some kind of sensual contact. One of the senses is firing, right? We see something, we hear something, we taste something, smell something, we touch something. So that's, you know, that's the first experience, is the experience of the body. And the more contact we have with our body, the more access we have to our emotional life and to our mental states, yeah? Um, and the more, the more choice we begin to have about how to regulate around those states, how to manage those emotional and mental states skillfully in some way. So helping people to have more contact with their body um, is useful. The challenge is that they need some companionship, at least initially, when that physical contact evokes some strong emotions in them. And so then you have, that's when your good, skillful hands can be invaluable. But it isn't about, you know, it's about just keeping your hands on them. You know, when I was teaching our volunteers how to turn somebody in bed, you know, in the hospice, we'd often do it with two people. And one person was the safe person, you know. They just kept their hands on the individual. So when that experience of being turned, which is frightening to a patient, occurs. One's doing the turn and the other's the safe person. And you know that from your massage work. This Often in massage, we talk about the safe hand on the other hand that's doing the work, right? So you need to be a safe hand with them as well when you're introducing them to this work, to this, to this possibility, rather. Okay. Let's go to someone else, Steve. Well, a, a very... Uh fundamental basic one I'm trying to pull up here um, well basically <laughs> pancreatic cancer is a, a very tough one to deal with um, usually means the end is near yeah. what can we say to them about dying <laughs> oh, patient, boy. patient with pancreatic cancer so this this is the challenge with questions in a chat or a Q&A, you know, because they can be, you know, they can get conceptual and we can't answer these questions cognitively. If I were talking to this person, I'd, I'd ask them more questions. I'd inquire with them about what their basic concerns are. Um, I'd want to look at the the color in their cheeks and whether or not they're lower chin was shaking as they were speaking to me about this. 
because sometimes we ask a question looking for information, but the information really doesn't satisfy what's actually happening in our hearts and minds, which may be that we're just frightened, you know, that someone we love is dying and we don't know how to deal with it. And so we want more information so we can tell them. So, so I want to make a quick distinction here, and I, this may go off subject from this person's question, but compassion is that capacity that is innate to us that's other-focused. It rises up as an action to relieve someone else's suffering. And it often is motivated by empathy, the empathetic concern, right? That we feel something about the other person's hurt and pain. So compassion then tries to do something or tries to be with the person in a way that reduces their suffering, as we were just talking to Laura about. But there's another motivation that occurs, and it's personal distress. I see someone else that's hurting and in pain, and it's really freaking me out. It's causing me an enormous amount of distress. And so I do something to the other person to relieve my distress. And that's self-focused. That's not compassion. It's self-focused. So in those moments, we have to do things to address our own personal distress instead of doing something to the other, even sometimes giving them more information. So I want to just add that as a preliminary. Then coming back to this question instead of giving the person more information about their dying you have to find out how they how they see their dying you have to inquire with them you have to be willing to hang out with them and see you know what's there do they have frightening stories about what happens after they die are they um, scared of pain and then then you can compassionately intervene and address those particular concerns for them as opposed to doing something sort of broadly and generally. I, there's a story in the book, Steve, you may remember it, of a woman I knew, Christian scientist, very, just had tremendous faith, you know. And her granddaughter came to see her and she said, Grandma, you know, when you're dying, you don't have to worry because when you die, everybody who's died before you will be there to meet you. Now, Grandma had been okay with her dying, but now she was terrified. <laughs> and she got scared because her husband, Edgar, who died five years before her, had been beating her. And the idea of spending eternity with her was terribly frightening to Grandma. So I'm saying this because I don't want to impose my ideas on anyone. I want to inquire with them, find out from them what it is that's concerning them and what resources they might have available to address that and then to support that in them. I think it's really important that we support, support rather individuals, you know, capacity to be part of their own healing, their own autonomy. Yeah. I remember a, a resident at the Zen hospice long ago who said something similar. He said, I hope you're not going to tell me that I'm going to see everybody I know after I leave here because there's a lot of people I do not want to see again. <laughs> you know, yeah. this was a guy who had lived in the street and had had a you know a rough street life for a long yeah. time. So, yeah. you know, um, you know, we had a uh, an interesting question back to the choice and dying issue. How do you explain the difference between assisted dying and suicide to a patient who's considering 
uh, assisted dying and does not want to be guilty of suicide. (laughs) Well, it's hard because we have so many moral judgments about how people should die, you know? And we have lots of moral judgments about suicide, you know? We don't see it. Our compassionate hearts don't always open to people in suicide. We, We shame them more than we open our hearts to them frequently. Suicide is often an action of fear, you know, or just distress. Like, it's the best strategy I can come up with at the moment, you know, driven by in, un, unimaginable pain. And I don't just mean physical pain, but mental and emotional suffering as well. I, I was working with a Buddhist teacher, actually, and and he was coming to the end of his life as a result of a long-term illness. And and he was choosing, he was wanting to choose the option of physician-assisted death, but he was very guilty that he would be doing his death wrong in a way, and that this would be sending the wrong message to his students. And, and we talked, you know, about it in, in a very honest way. And I said, well, you know, first of all, we're all going to die. There's just different ways that we die, you know, so let's not put a lot of judgments on the particular, what gives rise to our death. But then we really just sat down, we talked honestly, and I said, well, what do you want, you know? And, you know, he began to tell me that what he wanted was to feel loved, regardless of his choices. He wanted to, he wanted to be told that he wanted to be respected, regardless of his choices, you know? And so we, we came up with a kind of mm, message from him about this. And we actually printed up that message and gave it out to all his students and his uh, his family and it be- and instead of everybody coming into the room with judgment they came in the room with great tenderness and compassion and surrounded him with uh, support for his decision so so I, I think uh, when we take the we take our personal preference and personal judgments and biases out of the situation it can help enormously yeah. We have flowing right from that. We have a lovely question from somebody who looks to be uh, maybe new to this work. And Thea is her name. As a new death doula, hospice volunteer and caregiver, I'd love to hear a bit more about how you do your homework with patients so as not to bring your own stuff, fears, etc., into caring for them. Thank you, and Thea. So Frank, do you have any stuff? You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, do I have stuff? <laughs> I got all kinds of stuff. And some of it's, you know, I worked with and some of it's quite unresolved. But here's the thing about my stuff and your about your stuff, Thea, is it's all a meeting place, you know? I mean, if we think we got to have it all worked out and be perfect before we do this work, well, nobody's going to be doing the work, you know? So my stuff, my grief is a meeting place with other people's grief. My anger is a me- possible meeting place with other people's anger. Yeah, it's a pl- it's a th- those are things we can connect around. We can make contact around. I don't have to have all the answers, but I have to be willing to hang out with both my own experience and theirs. You know, we imagine it's our expertise that will serve, but again, I think it's our humanity that serves the most. Now, you can't use the patient as your therapist, particularly not if you're a doula, you know. But 
you know, away from that bed, you know, if something comes up at the bedside, then you got to come home and do that work, you know. You got to take a look and see what's my own relationship to sickness, to old age, to death, to suffering. Yeah. And um, so you're not projecting it unconsciously onto the person that you're working with. Yeah. So, yeah, be willing to look. I think this is related to another a question from Rebecca is uh, how do we best work towards healing from experiencing ongoing grief? I mean, that's, that's some of the stuff, really, is uh, grief itself is as universal as you live on. Um, yeah. And it's something we have to learn to live with and how best to, to do that. Well, I, I feel like the answer man here, I have to be careful. You know, I don't have all the answers to these things. I, I have to often have to feel my way, and I, I often say my method is the Braille method. I feel my way along into the experience, and I let the experience and the exchange with another person show me and reveal to me, if you will, you know, what actually will help here. Yeah. But the, the, what I can say is that if we stop thinking of grief as a, grief as a pathology, that helps enormously. If we stop thinking of grief as something that we should get over, you know, get behind us, that that helps enormously. I mean, it's curious to me. I, I often say, you know, we often talk about getting over our grief, but we never talk about getting over our joy or getting over our happiness, you know? Like grief is part of the human experience. It's our common ground with each other. And I'm not sure that we get over it. I think that we learn to live with it skillfully. I think that we learn to live with it in a way where it doesn't have us by the throat all the time. But we need to recognize that grief is a long, slow process of the soul. And it can't be rushed. And it can't be subjected to models of, you know, what stages we are at and where and when, you know, and why shouldn't, if we're at stage two, why aren't we at stage five, you know? Um, so, it, you know, th there are different phases that occur in grief and they don't, they're not linear. They explode onto our awareness suddenly sometimes. When someone we love dies, you know, even if we've been prepared for it for our whole, for months on end, we're still shocked. Often we're shocked and we feel like we've been punched in the belly and we can't find our, our breath. And it feels like that. And that's a face of grief, you know? Grief's not just about sadness. It's about fear and anger and numbness. Where we feel like we're walking through molasses sometimes. And then there's this experience of constant losing that occurs. You know, when someone you love dies, you don't just lose them once, you lose them multiple times. If your wife dies and, and you get into bed at night and the sheets are cold, you lose her again. Or if your, your husband was the one who did the banking business, when you have to go down to the bank and figure out your way into the you know, safe deposit box, you lose him again. And so there's this ongoing experience when there's been a significant loss in our life, there's an ongoing experience of losing that continues. Gradually, with attention, you know, we, we have this, no, we have this 
phrase that time heals. That's crap. Excuse me, but it's crap. You know, time alone does not heal anything. Time and attention, time and wisdom, time and compassion heal. Yeah. So we have to bring our attention to what's occurring over time. And one of the things that occurs over time is that the knot of grief through our loving attention begins to get untied. It gets loosened and it doesn't have us by the throat so much anymore. And we begin to develop a kind of internal relationship with the person who's died. And then we bring them with us everywhere. And, and, And the sense of distance from them shifts and changes in our life. And they get they get included, they get integrated into our life. And then we can reinvest in other dimensions of our life that we had to withdraw from to to, uh, include the many faces of grief that are natural and normal to the experience of loss. Yeah. So it's not a pathology. You don't get over the grief. You include the grief. It becomes you know, a richer essential element of your human existence. Yeah. And I, I, I learned through experience and have had and have tried to impart when I teach, you know, the original book that we all learned from in the teaching was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and her, her five stages of grief became iconic and, so many people saw those as something that you moved through and then you were done. Um, and what I, the way I see it is those, those are stages that you can go through every day or every hour or every minute. And the thing is, is that they become less acute and less troublesome as you go through them over time. Yeah. But they're still with you. Yeah. So you can experience the first you know, shock, you know, over and over and, you know, months or years later, but it might impact you less uh, painfully. And, sure. and then, you know, eventually you'll arrive at a better place, but it's not completely linear. No, it's by no means a linear process, you know, and, and, and Elizabeth didn't mean them that way. You know, I think that they've been distorted and, you know, our... our our fascination with models, you know, causes us to adapt them in a way that, you know, makes them into a linear process. Um, and by the way, those same five stages got transferred onto how people die. And everyone imagined, you know, hospice workers around the country thought that their job was to get people to acceptance. That was the final box to check, you know. But I don't think it's true. I think, I don't think acceptance is the end of the road. I think it's the beginning, actually. You know, when my marriage falls apart, I might accept it, but it doesn't mean I'm happy about it. Yeah. So, you know, in the dying process that I've witnessed anyway, you know, sometimes people come to acceptance, but often after acceptance comes a deeper experience, which is chaos. You know, a kind of chaos when the sense of self, the the known self, the familiar self, the egoic self, the small separate self we've taken ourselves to be, when that's breaking down, when all the ways we've defined ourselves or or, uh, identified, when those things are changing, when they're either being stripped away by illness or gracefully given up, there's a kind of chaos that occurs. 
And in that chaos, an appreciably deeper dimension than acceptance emerges, and it's surrender. And surrender is, is, is not weakness. Surrender is ceasing the struggle. You know, it's, and that's engendered by faith sometimes or relationships that we can really rely on, but also by exhaustion. I come back to that earlier question about exhaustion. Sometimes we just can't keep up the fight anymore. And so we surrender and we soften and we relax. And we, we realize that the thing that was most frightening to us, you know, that big expanse out there is actually our own nature. And uh, we often, or I've seen frequently, people slip very gracefully into that uh, experience of surrender, which is the doorway to transformation. So we are actually up on our end of time here. Uh Um, I'm wondering if you want to say anything in closing. I'm just going to, you know, at the end of your book, you, you printed a few great poems, haikus, et cetera, and one that I particularly love that I hadn't seen before from somebody named Kozan Ichikyo. Yeah. Died in 1360, so almost 700 years ago. Empty-handed, I entered the world. Barefoot, I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I love that. Yeah. So, you know, uh, do you want to say anything in, in, in parting here? No. Well, just that, you know, I mean, there's that tradition in Zen practice, both monks and and lay people, to write a death poem on the day of your death that tells the essential truth of your life. That's what Kozan's poem was about, you know. And um, but we don't have to be Zen masters, you know, and we don't have to wait until the time of our dying to write the poem that, or to come in contact with what means the most to us, what matters the most to us, what's essentially true for us. And I think when we do that, we 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 have a kind of we can have a kind of confidence in our life, you know? So the only thing I want to say in, in, in the end here, and, and maybe I've talked too much about love, I don't know, but it's partly because it's my biggest support right now, is that you, each of you, everybody on this call, you can trust your essential heart to be a reliable guide. It's not going to abandon you. It's important that we develop expertise and skills, of course, but trust your heart to be a reliable guide. And here I'm not speaking about your emotional heart. I'm talking about your wise heart. Yeah, That's not going to abandon you. And it's going to give you the guidance you need to move through situations that you've never been through before. Don't think about dying or grieving as a binary process. It's a process of paradox, you know, and, and the more skilled we become at embracing that paradox, you know, Jung talked about holding the tension of opposites, right? When we can hold, not so busy choosing between this and that, between either or, often what emerges is a, a new possibility that we couldn't have imagined. So be willing to embrace paradox. The dying process and the grieving process are chock full of paradox, yeah? And um, and they're not they're 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 better addressed by um, by both and thinking than binary thinking. Okay, so be kind to yourself if you're in the middle of one of these processes. Be very kind to yourself. Nothing's more important. 
And Steve, I, I want to thank you for everything you do and for being such a mentor to me around public health and these issues. You've been really a great support for me and my learning. And thanks to everybody at Commonweal and all the people behind the scenes who make this possible and, and the new school. So, yeah, I, I hope that somehow my words have been of some small support to some people here. And, and if so, I'm glad to have contributed my time. Yeah. I'm very confident that they have. So, Frank, thank you very much. And thank you for everybody who's joined us. We, um, as you know, I believe we do these free of charge. We ask for donations if anybody's willing. Uh, you can find the uh, link in, Kira has posted it in the uh, chat box and I think in the Q&A perhaps too. It's also on our website, the new school at Commonweal. Special deal is we have these beautiful mugs now that we are uh, offering, $20 donation. You can get this sent to you. Frank will get one if you don't have it yet. I use it for everything, tea, cereal. My late great dog, Shuggy, even enjoyed it very much for anything that I could put in it. <laughs> so again, and thank you, Frank. Thank you for everybody joining here. Thank you all for joining us at the New School in Commonweal. We will sign off here. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Frank Ostaseski and host Steve Heilig. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kira Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.